Hey everyone, so I've decided to do a little movie review. I know, kind of out of the usual wheelhouse of the show, but I've done a few in the past. I was actually going to do a review of a documentary about Anthony Bourdain that I watched a few weeks back, but I just recently watched Don't Look Up, so that's what's on the front burner right now, so to speak. And just a quick bit of house cleaning before we begin. House cleaning or housekeeping? I always forget how the saying goes. But anyway, I was listening back to the last episode while putting together the YouTube version, and I noticed a little mistake, which is usually how it goes. I'll be focusing on the audio while scouring the web for images to go along with it, and I'll suddenly realize that I made some kind of error that got by me earlier in the editing process. This time I simply misspoke. I was talking about anti-nausea meds, and I think twice I said anti-memetic, which is a literary term of sorts pertaining to mimesis, which has to do with imitation, etc. But I said anti-memetic instead of anti-emetic, which is a fancy term describing drugs that treat nausea. I'm familiar with both terms, but for some reason, brain glitch. And there was one other thing. I was talking about the so-called War on Christmas, and I kind of lumped Tucker Carlson in with Bill O'Reilly and Trump. And although I think Carlson has done some War on Christmas-esque segments on his show, he's also supposedly on the record as having said the following. The War on Christmas. This is the most ridiculous right-wing talking point I have ever lived through. The idea that liberals want to get rid of Christmas. I'm not sure when he said that or if it was before or after his move to Fox News, but in the spirit of intellectual honesty, I just want to acknowledge the existence of that quote. And on a separate note, I also just want to quickly mention that I think I may have improved the audio quality of the show. Even after recently getting a new computer after the last one suddenly went belly up, I noticed I was still getting these really annoying audio glitches, these electronic pops, etc. I was starting to fear that maybe my mic was failing, but for the heck of it, I tried turning down the, uh, the gain on the mic and lowering the input level in GarageBand, and that seems to have done the trick. So let me know if you thought the last episode sounded better than usual. Okay, finally, we got all that stuff out of the way, so don't look up. I saw the poster art or an advertisement for it online, and it piqued my interest. I could see that Leonardo DiCaprio was in it, so I read the description or synopsis, and I thought, oh, a quirky offbeat comedy. And I like quirky comedies, mockumentaries, etc., but I kind of have to be in the mood. Uh, not that this is a mockumentary. Uh, anyway, so I almost passed on this one, and I'm glad I didn't, because I really liked it. I'll even go as far as to say that I think it's probably one of the best or more memorable movies that I've seen in a while. And the film left such an impression on me that I feel kind of weird simply saying I quote-unquote liked it. I did quite a bit actually, which is why I'm doing this review. But like seems to maybe imply a kind of casual enjoyment which fails to describe, I think, the experience of watching this film. Although it's billed as a comedy, I guess what you would call a black comedy, it's not a light movie. It's very dark and heavy in a way. And so, spoiler alert, this review is going to be chock full of spoilers. The main premise is that these two scientists, played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence, 
are tasked with trying to warn the public and the powers that be that there's a comet on track to hit the Earth within six months, and if something isn't done about it, it will most likely wipe out humanity. And the filmmakers do an amazing job of instilling this really heavy sense of impending doom in the viewer. It's like you can feel this dark pall hanging over you, you know, while you're watching the film. I guess the humor helps take the edge off that or offers a brief respite here and there, uh, but still a really dark movie. And I'm not saying that as a criticism, I'm just trying to accurately describe the mood of the film. And a lot of the humor is more darkly farcical than knee-slapping funny. For instance, a major plot point is that you have these scientists trying to warn the world about this impending disaster, yet both the government and the media have their heads too far up their asses to want to listen or do anything about it, which in hindsight or with the way I'm wording it sounds more depressing than funny, I guess, which kind of goes to my point about the mood of the film. And I have to admit that I had this kind of light dawns on Marblehead moment while watching the film. I don't know if that's a saying used in other places or just here in New England. Here in Mass, there's a coastal town called Marblehead, and if someone is being a bit thick-headed or slow on the uptake and finally gets it, people will sometimes sarcastically go, oh, light dawns on Marblehead, or finally dawns on Marblehead, something like that. I remember even teachers saying that to me once or twice. Mass holes. Anyway, so it took a while before I realized that the film can be viewed as an allegory about climate change. I knew there was an obvious message about science denialism or the danger of mankind or a particular nation collectively keeping its head in the sand. Maybe even some intentional or unintentional COVID parallels. But once again, I was a bit slow on the uptake with the climate change analogy. But I don't think you necessarily have to view it through that metaphorical lens. Even if you just follow the surface-level narrative, it's still a very compelling story in its own right. But I think it's pretty obvious that the film is functioning as a metaphor or that there's a heavy metaphorical aspect to the film. And one thing that people might find somewhat refreshing is that... Even though there are admittedly some Trump-slash-mega parallels, the film still manages, in my opinion, not to get too overtly political or divisive. I could be mistaken, but I don't recall the words Republican or Democrat even being uttered or mentioned during the film. Could be mistaken. Uh, but yeah, to reiterate, there are some Trump parallels, uh, but I don't think the film is rabidly partisan. In fact, a lot of the movie's scorn or criticism seems to be aimed at the media, both old guard or traditional media, as well as social media and social media gurus, tech giants, etc. And on that note, I think the most disturbing character in the film is this tech giant who's kind of like a fusion of Steve Jobs, Tim Cook, Mark Zuckerberg, and Marshall Applewhite, the leader of that Heaven's Gate suicide cult. A very creepy character who's played unsettlingly well by an English actor named Mark Rylance, I think it is. And since I'm talking about that character, I might as well give a brief overview of some of the other characters and how they fit into the plot. So you have Leonardo DiCaprio as Dr. Randall Mindy, yes, like the girl's name, as in Mork and Mindy, and Jennifer Lawrence as Kate DiBiaschi. 
DiCaprio's character is an astronomy professor at Michigan State University, and Jennifer Lawrence's character is a grad student or doctoral candidate at the same school. She's the one who first spots the comet, so they name it after her, Comet DiBiaschi. And, uh, and DiCaprio's character is the one who runs the calculations and comes to the grim realization that it's headed towards the Earth. And then you have an actor by the name of Rob Morgan as Teddy Oglethorpe, the head of the Planetary Defense Coordination Office. And I looked it up, and it's actually a real organization within NASA that's tasked with finding and cataloging near-Earth objects that could pose a threat, like comets and asteroids. And so these three characters kind of form a little team with the aforementioned goal of warning everyone that there's a comet headed towards the Earth and that most likely the impact will be catastrophic. They get a meeting with the president, who's portrayed by Meryl Streep, President Janie Orlean, I believe, but she, President Orlean, can't really seem to be bothered. She's more concerned with the upcoming midterms and politics, etc., and I mentioned that I think the film does an admirable job of not coming off as being obnoxiously partisan or going out of its way to stoke political division. But as I've said repeatedly now, there are some Trump slash MAGA parallels. The MAGA parallels seem to become more pronounced near the end of the film. But President Orlean has a son named Jason Orlean, portrayed by Jonah Hill. And even though Jonah Hill looks nothing like one of the Trump kids, something about the way they did his hair or maybe the wardrobe, he kind of looks like a fusion of Eric and Don Jr. And he plays this really brash and entitled kid who was given a job or some power within his mother's administration. And I think the first time we see him, it looks like he's rubbing under his nose like he just did a line. And I have to say, I think Jonah Hill's character probably provides the majority of the comic relief because he plays this really obnoxious character without a mental filter, so he's constantly making inappropriate comments that simultaneously make you laugh, but at the same time also kind of make you squirm in your seat. And one example of this is that there's this ongoing joke or trend throughout the movie where Jennifer Lawrence's character kind of keeps getting undeservedly, you know, stepped on or disrespected or treated like she's not even in the room. She plays this kind of awkward grad student with this kind of alt haircut. And I believe Jonah Hill's character refers to her as the girl with the mullet or something to that effect. And when she speaks, people are kind of like, who are you again? Uh, I actually thought she looked really cute with the quote unquote mullet, but hey, I'm a weirdo. And there's also this ongoing theme where a number of Jonah Hill's characters' inappropriate comments have to do with his apparent sexual attraction for his own mother, the president. He casually refers to her as a MILF and makes comments like, if she wasn't my mother. Now, I don't know if this is supposed to be a parody of or inspired by the whole creepy incest vibe between uh, Donald Trump and his daughter Ivanka that people used to point out and make fun of. But of course, in that case, the roles were reversed. It was Trump who had this bizarre track record of making what you could argue were inappropriate comments about his own daughter. He once agreed that she was a quote-unquote piece of ass back in the day on the Howard Stern show. And there's video of him during another interview where the interviewer asks him what he and his daughter have in common. And I believe he says her answers, quote-unquote, sex. And I think on a few occasions, 
uh, he's made the old "if she wasn't my daughter" or "if I wasn't her father" kind of comments. And contrary to how it might sound, this isn't me going out of my way to try to bash Trump. To be honest, I'm so exhausted by politics and COVID that I feel like I don't even have the energy or desire to go off on some anti-Trump rant. You know, this is just me trying to keep it real and make some honest comparisons and point out certain parallels as we go along. I guess if you want me to try to be a bit more fair, I could bring up Joe Biden and the hair sniffing and possibly dropping a non-consensual digit, trying not to get too graphic. <sighs> rain it in, rain it in. Back to the review. Okay, and so I'm not certain how much Trump we're supposed to see in Meryl Streep's character, or if maybe to some degree she's supposed to be a kind of composite figure, embodying or symbolizing self-serving politicians in general, but there's obviously some Trump parallels there. But to reiterate, so DiCaprio and Lawrence's characters, along with Rob Morgan's character, the head of the Planetary Defense Coordination Office, <sighs> try to warn the president. But once again, she's more concerned with politics than taking the threat seriously. So they then decide to go to the media. And I was touching on this earlier, but I think the movie lampoons or criticizes several forms or branches of the media. I already mentioned how there's this Peter Isherwell, I think the last name is, character. This very kind of creepy, almost cult leader-esque tech giant. But they also take the kind of old guard or traditional media to task as well. They go to what I think was supposed to be a prominent traditional newspaper outlet, and the paper actually runs a story about the comet, etc. But then later, when the scientists return, they tell them they're cutting them off. A character who I imagine was supposed to be a high-ranking editor or something angrily tells the scientist characters, we stuck our necks out for you, and now we have scientific experts refuting or debunking your claims about an approaching comet. And, you know, that's it. We're done. No more stories. I'm paraphrasing, but something to that effect. And so it turns out that the supposed expert who had refuted their claims wasn't even a fellow astronomer or a scientist in a related field. They were an anesthesiologist slash friend and donor of the president who the president had installed in a position of power. And I couldn't help but notice another Trump parallel. It made me specifically think of Louis DeJoy, uh, a friend and wealthy Trump donor who he installed as postmaster general, supposedly in hopes that he could slow down the mail, negatively affecting mail-in voting, which was projected to favor Biden. But in fairness, I don't think Trump's necessarily the first to do something like that. Well, appointing a friend and donor postmaster general during an election with unprecedented mail-in voting, that was pretty brazen. But crony capitalism rewarding wealthy donors with positions of power or government jobs or contracts, that's something that occurs on both sides of the aisle. And just so I don't have to eat crow or issue a correction next episode... I'll briefly read a bit from this Washington Post article. It's kind of a fact-checking piece regarding Trump and DeJoy. So it says, false, DeJoy was appointed by Trump. One of DeJoy's habits in congressional testimony is to remind lawmakers that he was appointed not by then-President Donald Trump, but by Postal Service's bipartisan governing board. That's true, but it's more complicated than that. 
First, DeJoy was appointed by the Board of Governors, whose members are nominated by the President, confirmed by the Senate, and are supposed to run the Postal Service as an independent agency. But the Trump administration had an outsized, unprecedented, and as numerous experts claim, improper role in shaping postal leadership. And so I'll skip down a bit. The board chose DeJoy, a former supply chain logistics executive and major Trump donor. He had not been identified for the role by either of the two executive search firms the governors hired to find candidates. Then board chairman Robert M. Duncan, a former Republican National Committee chair, submitted DeJoy's name for vetting. Duncan told a House panel in August DeJoy took office in June. Now skip down. Second, the board is indeed bipartisan, but to some in name only. The board was empty when Trump took office, and he appointed every sitting governor, four Republicans and three Democrats. When DeJoy was hired, only three Republicans and two Democrats held seats. Before the governors could vote to hire DeJoy, Democratic Vice Chair David C. Williams resigned, upset, according to people familiar with his thinking, over the Trump administration's meddling and the board's obsequiousness. The board held the vote and DeJoy was hired. So in a sense, it looks like Trump did, you know, still install DeJoy, but in, most likely, but in kind of an indirect way. And fun fact, I first discovered the word obsequious while reading Jack Kerouac's On the Road. Uh, I used to be a huge Jack Kerouac fan, still am. I just, you know, it's been so long since I read any of his books. And actually, Lowell Mass is right near me, and I think there might be a, uh, a Jack Kerouac museum possibly coming. So that's interesting. But yeah, I used to love Kerouac. Um, and, and it's kind of via Kerouac that I first became interested in Buddhism, because I think after On the Road, the next book I read was The Dharma Bums, which really goes in depth into Kerouac's interest in Buddhism and meditation, etc., and the only thing that kind of stains my appreciation of Jack Kerouac is the knowledge that he was supposedly a really bad dad. He, if you know anything about Kerouac, you know, he was always traveling, uh, hence, uh, you know, the title On the Road. He had this kind of um, lifestyle where he just wa wanted to be this kind of wandering writer, you know, and um, didn't want to be tied down or anything. And yeah, supposedly uh, he had one child, a daughter named Jan, who he didn't meet until she was 10. And I think he didn't see her. He only saw her again one, one other time. Uh, and she lived a pretty hard life. I think she even turned to prostitution at times. And she died at the relatively young age of 44. So I absolutely love Kerouac. And he was always talking about compassion and... Um, that kind of thing, and you know, it, you know, really expressed this kind of humanity and tenderness in his writings, and yet horrible father. So that's the one thing that mars my my view of Kerouac. But I absolutely loved his uh, his books when I was younger. But anyway, so back to the review. So the scientist characters. Go back to that uh, that newspaper, that publication. They get cut off because they say, you know, there's a scientific expert or experts plural who have refuted or debunked your claim about the comet. And uh, you know, I think the bigger point that the film is trying to make is how money and power can infect the media, potentially stifling the truth. And so, this is probably a good time to mention that 
the movie is directed by Adam McKay. And Adam McKay helped write the story, too, but it's also by David Sirota, a, uh, a journalist himself. So it's interesting that you have this movie that's criticizing the media, and um, it was a journalist who helped write the story. So there's probably a lot of personal kind of insights and inside baseball there, you know? And then they also really poke fun of that, you know, fake saccharine sweet morning show kind of format. They have these two morning show host characters that were obviously, you know, based on Kelly Ripa and is it Michael Strahan or Strahan? And they're portrayed by Kate Blanchett and Tyler Perry. And I was tempted to irreverently joke that you can probably guess which actor played which role. It would be kind of surreal if Kate Blanchett played the uh, the large black man. But uh, hey, she played Bob Dylan. That's a true story. I haven't. I've never gotten around to seeing seeing that film. I think it was called "I'm Not There" or something like that. But it was an unconventional Bob Dylan biopic where different actors play Bob Dylan at different points in his life. And Kate Blanchett is one of them. And I think she plays the 60s era Bob Dylan. So she's got the perm and everything. Very strange. I'm going to have to check that out someday. But anyway, so Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence's characters go on this morning show. And Kate DiBiaschi, Lawrence's character, just finally has this explosive on-air meltdown because she's trying to warn the world that there's a comet that's going to wipe out humanity. But no matter what, the hosts just keep up this BS facade, smiling and joking for the camera, and they treat her meltdown like it's taboo. This is a morning show, can't have people getting real, you know? But they keep having DiCaprio's character on as a kind of reoccurring guest, almost like a science correspondent. And it's funny, you know, the, the movie pokes fun of social media, too. The people on social media seem to be more interested in DiCaprio's looks and commenting on how, you know, hot the science guy is, rather than being concerned about the fact that there's a, a comet headed for the Earth. And DiCaprio's character is very interesting. I think we're all probably, you know, used to DiCaprio playing these youthful leading man roles. He has a naturally youthful appearance, and he's been considered a heartthrob for a long time. I remember way back in the day before he got really big, he was on Growing Pains alongside Kirk Cameron. I think it was uh, later on in the series. He played kind of a troubled foster kid, I think. And as an atheist, it's difficult, but I'll resist the temptation to go off on a Kirk Cameron tangent. Uh, is my friend Crocoduck listening? And DiCaprio still looks youthful, but he's getting to that age where he can start playing older characters. And actually, Ariana Grande is in this movie, and she kind of plays a parody of herself. And at one point, she's in the green room with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, and she's being kind of ditzy yet polite, and she makes some flaky remark about how the comet reminds her of some astrological tattoo or some, <laughs> something like that. And so DiCaprio tries to continue breaking the ice by sheepishly telling her he's sorry about her public breakup, because I think it was 
was actually on the TV in the green room, and all of a sudden she completely flips, and it was actually kind of brutal and scary. I've been trying to swear less on the show, but she goes, how about you mind your own business, you old fuck, or something like that, but she calls him an old fuck. Uh, she just completely bites his head off, and DiCaprio's character in response just kind of slides or shrinks down in his chair and meekly goes, okay, or something like that. Yeah, it's funny, he plays a kind of socially awkward middle-aged scientist, very humble and soft-spoken, and we're used to seeing DiCaprio with these hot, glamorous actresses, but his wife in the movie, I hate saying frumpy, but eh, kind of frumpy, and he, ha and he has two kids that look like they're in their late teens or early 20s. Seeing DiCaprio play the dad of kids that look like they're about to go off to college, that'll make you feel old, at least if you're around my age, I'm a Gen Xer. But DiCaprio's character is so nice, I'm like, is there gonna be a heel turn? Does he try to claim credit for the comet's discovery? But no, he for the most part starts and end, ends as a genuinely, you know, decent guy. But he does temporarily lose his way a bit, a bit. Kate Blanchett's character, the Kelly Ripa-esque morning show host, uh, takes a shine to him and they end up having an affair. And at one point, the wife of DiCaprio's character walks in on them, and she starts throwing pill bottles. I'm paraphrasing, but she's like, here's his antidepressants, here's his anti-anxiety meds, his appetite suppressants, and here's his Cialis. Uh, glad to know I'm not the only one on multiple medications. And I know, he's a fictional character, but you get my point. And sadly, I'm sure there's uh, lots of people out there like myself who are on a bunch of stuff. You're not alone. Uh, anyway, uh, eventually DiCaprio's character falls out of favor with Blanchett's character after he too eventually has an on-air meltdown. And it's a really powerful scene. It's like he's reached his wit's end and says, and I'm paraphrasing, if we can't all agree on the basic fact or facts, in this case, that there's a comet headed for the Earth, then what hope is there for us? And I think that's probably how a lot of people feel now. I know I often feel that frustration. You know, how are you supposed to stay sane in a world where facts don't seem to matter? And although the movie doesn't really address COVID, at least not in any, any uh, direct or overt way, I think it does a good job of tapping into the heightened anxiety of or in the current zeitgeist and this, you know, growing feeling of instability or that the world's gone a bit mad which probably has a lot to do with COVID and all of the tension and division surrounding it. And once again, this movie is considered a comedy, and at times it does have this quirky, awkward sense of humor, but it's very, you know, once again, very heavy at times. And that scene where DiCaprio's character breaks down on the air is one example of that. It's probably one of the more powerful or memorable moments in the film, and I also thought Jennifer Lawrence's character, her similar meltdown earlier in the film, was also rather powerful. Yeah, there's something about seeing these central characters driven to the breaking point. And for some reason, it reminds me of uh, one of my favorite movie scenes. It was uh, The Bounty, the uh, 1984 film starring Anthony Hopkins and Mel Gibson. I think Liam Neeson was in it, too, and obviously based on uh, Mutiny on the Bounty. And there's that scene where Mel Gibson just breaks and he screams, I am in hell. Um, yeah, I don't, know, I don't know if it's really analogous, but yeah, it came to mind. 
At one point in the film, don't look up, not the bounty, probably didn't have to clarify that. I believe the scientists get a second audience with the president. Remember when that happened in the, in the bounty? Anyway, and to their relief, she tells them, uh, cracking myself up, that the government's actually going to take action. They plan on launching a rocket or a series of rockets into space in an attempt to knock the comet off its trajectory. And that's a proposed idea that's been around for years now, you know, that if we ever do find ourselves faced with this kind of doomsday scenario, we may be able to knock or steer the comet or asteroid off course using some sort of missiles or ballistics or whatever. Um, and so Ron Perlman plays this grizzled old colonel slash presidential Medal of Freedom recipient, and he's the one who's going to be leading the mission. And so he launches off into space along with a host of rockets. DiCaprio's character and the others are all watching with anticipation, hoping that this is, you know, the thing that's going to deliver mankind from certain doom. And then all of a sudden, nope, we're turning back around. Coming home, mission aborted. And so I don't even know if it's possible to just turn back around like that during a launch. But I think it's meant to be comically absurd, but at the same time, you still buy it in a sense because you're so invested in the film and the characters and share their vicarious confusion and disappointment. And so the characters and the viewer are left wondering what's going on. Why did they abort the mission? And the explanation is yet again comically absurd. And yet there's a sense of truth that kind of resonates where you're kind of like, yep, I could kind of see a big corporation doing that, prioritizing profit or business interests over human welfare. So they stop the mission mid-launch because the Peter Isherwell character, this big tech giant, contacts the president with a different plan, and she agrees. He wants to use fancy experimental tech his company's developed to strategically break up the comet into fragments, letting them then fall to Earth so his company can extract the trillions of dollars worth of minerals used in computing from them. And this is another actual idea that's been proposed by scientists on how we could potentially deal with an impending comet or asteroid strike uh, blasted into pieces. But I think the concern with that method is that the multiple impacts caused by the scattered fragments could still be catastrophic, but you're just spreading the damage out. Not sure if that's still the view. I probably heard that in a documentary about 15 years ago. <laughs> Once again, not a scientist. But the film's creepy depiction of a tech giant definitely touches on something for me. Like everyone, I have a smartphone and a computer. I used to be really into tech, especially Apple devices, in part probably because when I went back to school for design, I learned on, you know, on a Mac or Macs. I used to really like reading tech articles, visiting sites like Mac Rumors, and keeping up to speed concerning when the new iPhone or new iPad was coming out, etc. Uh, now I, you know, I couldn't care less. The devices are so expensive and the upgrades or improvements are so relatively minimal that it makes more sense to just hang on to what I've got until, you know, the device either starts to fail or really starts to underperform. Uh, but like a lot of us, I imagine. I have mixed feelings about companies like Apple. There's no doubt they've changed how we live. 
They've given us all these devices that several decades ago would have seemed like complete science fiction. Uh, the tricorder in Star Trek, which I think ironically may have been part of the inspiration for, you know, devices like the iPhone. I think uh, Steve Jobs admitted he was, you know, inspired by Star Trek. Uh, you know, the tricorder now seems like nothing, like a calculator compared to an iPhone. So we all have these little supercomputers, you know, these devices um, that allow us to effortlessly access this seemingly endless repository of human knowledge that allow us to instantly communicate with others, guide us to wherever we need to go, allow us to buy almost anything we can think of, and have it show up on our doorstep two days later, sometimes less. And I think I may have accidentally said tri-quarter instead of tri-quarter. Save myself yet another correction next week. Um, but, you know, but there seems to be an ugly truth behind all this modern convenience. We've probably all heard about Foxconn, you know, the harsh conditions, suicide nets. And I'm sure there's probably, you know, similar places elsewhere. Then there's the stories or reports of children mining minerals like lithium and cobalt used in electronics under harsh conditions. And I think there's sort of a human tendency to assume on some level that whatever given age you're living in is in a sense the pinnacle of human advancement and that we're better than the primitives with their relatively crude tech and barbaric practices that came before us. But I think someday if we don't destroy ourselves first, future generations will look back on our age and view some of our practices or institutions like the way we utilize exploitive labor abroad to make our junk, as I was just saying, to mine our, you know, the minerals used in our electronics and to harvest some of our crops like cocoa. Uh, yes, even something as seemingly innocent as chocolate has been linked to child labor and oppressive work conditions. And as an, you know, as an animal lover, I think another atrocity we'll be judged for is, of course, the nightmare of factory farming. I think someday history will rightfully judge us harshly and look back on these, you know, practices with, with the same kind of revulsion or moral disgust with which we view practices like the use of child labor in the 19th century, you know, during the industrial era, and, of course, the transatlantic slave trade, the owning of other human beings as property, which persisted into the latter half of the 19th century here in the U.S. Uh, until 1865, to be uh, precise, I believe. But off my soapbox and back to the movie. So as you might expect, things don't really go exactly as planned concerning this attempt to fragment the comet. One by one, the little drones on the surface of the comet start to fail. The president keeps looking over at the tech guy, and as more and more fail, he keeps trying to pretend everything's alright. But yep, the plan fails and the comet is still headed for Earth. And so we're pretty far into the movie now. And at one point, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Dr. Randall Mindy, is driving at night and he suddenly stops in the middle of traffic and gets out of his car because he spotted the comet, which has now gotten so close it's become visible to the naked eye. At first, everyone's beeping their horns impatiently, but slowly they all start exiting their vehicles as well, and everyone is just looking up at the sky in awe. And it was this strangely moving scene, because there's this thing, this force of nature on its way to wipe out humanity. But here you have these strangers sharing this communal moment as they gaze in awe at its beauty. And so people are finally starting to get it. 
it's reached the point where, as I was saying, you can actually see it with your own eyes, and all you have to do is just look up. And so, just look up, I think it is, becomes kind of a viral hashtag movement, and, you know, quickly taking the world by storm. Uh, everyone's coming together over their shared acknowledgement that this thing is real, and to be honest, I'm not sure if I have the chronology right regarding the order of all these events and plot developments, but after this look up, uh, or just look up movement starts gaining traction, the president holds a rally where for political reasons and her own ego, she's, you know, she downplays the danger and dismisses the movement. And then her followers start a quote-unquote don't look up movement, and they all start wearing red hats that say don't look up, and they engage in and put forward all these crazy conspiracy theories, suggesting that the threat or the comet itself isn't real, etc., and so that's probably the most blatant Trump-slash-mega parallel, the rallies, the red hats. But eventually even her followers start to come around and turn on her, realizing that she had lied or minimized the threat. And I'm trying not to get too political, but I'm somewhat reminded of how many of Trump's own fans have started to turn on him recently because of how he's been openly promoting vaccines. And obviously the two things aren't, you know, analogous. A comet headed for the Earth that you can see with your own eyes, that is a concrete danger. Whereas with vaccines, there's more room for opinion and quibbling over, you know, statistics and anecdotes. My personal opinion about COVID vaccines is kind of complicated or nuanced. I think the most important thing to keep in mind, and I don't think this is up for debate, is that vaccines seem to greatly reduce the risk of hospitalization or death. And even if you get a breakthrough case, it's most likely going to be much more mild than if you hadn't been vaccinated. And yet, despite that fact, there are still people who are vaccine hesitant. They either think that the vaccines pose some kind of danger. Please don't strike my channel, YouTube. Oh, I can't even talk about this stuff openly. Um, or uh, they think that natural immunity is, is preferable. And there was that study out of Israel that suggested that natural immunity offers more protection than being vaccinated. And yet the same study, and this is what many people overlook, also says that uh, or suggests that one shot of vaccine in combination with natural immunity offers greater protection than natural immunity alone. And my kind of dark joke about, you know, opting for natural immunity is, you know, there's only one way to get natural immunity, and that's to get COVID. And so it's kind of a gamble. It's like, come on, natural immunity. Uh-oh, ventilator. And just last night on YouTube, I was watching yet another deathbed video uh, you know, an anti-vaxxer dying of COVID in the hospital. And sometimes they'll actually, you know, they'll have an awakening. And at the end, they'll, they'll say, you know, I didn't take this thing seriously. Please go out and get vaccinated. That kind of thing. This, the guy was doubling down. He was finally admitting that COVID was a thing. It's, you know, and it'll kill you. But he kept on with the conspiracy theories and was blaming, uh, you know, everyone else, the Democrats, uh, and not taking responsibility for not getting vaccinated. But, and the guy was fairly young, like in his, looked like he was 
somewhere between his mid-30s to early 40s. And that's another thing people like Joe Rogan, etc., keep saying that COVID is a disease of the obese and the elderly. And there is some truth to that, that, um, yeah, it, it's true that most COVID victims do tend to be overweight. Um, and most Americans tend to be overweight. Uh, and, um, Obviously, if you're elderly, you have a, a, just the, the aging process. You have a compromised or weakened immune system, so that leaves you vulnerable. But there are plenty of, you know, relatively healthy people out there, relatively young people who get COVID and end up, you know, in the hospital. So, but another reason I mentioned why people might be vaccine hesitant or might not want to get vaccinated is they feel that the vaccines may be potentially dangerous or harmful. And one thing we hear about a lot is myocarditis, this kind of inflammation of the heart muscle. And supposedly this is sometimes seen as a side effect of the vaccine in young males, so adolescent, teenage boys, men in their early 20s. But as I've said on the show before, supposedly you're much more likely to develop myocarditis as a symptom of COVID itself than as a vaccine side effect. And just this past week, actually, there was a clip from an episode of Joe Rogan's podcast that was really getting a lot of play on YouTube, a lot of content creators commenting on it. And in the clip, Joe is kind of clashing with his guest. Um, Clashing might be too violent a term because it was actually a rather calm exchange, but they obviously had a difference of opinion. His guest was saying that not only are you more likely to develop myocarditis as a symptom of COVID itself rather than a vaccine side effect or as a vaccine side effect, but this also applies to that group of concern, young boys and men. And so Joe has Jamie pull up the data or go to the website, and Joe is just kind of silently, you know, looking at the screen. You can almost hear the wheels turning. He's trying to figure out how to process this information without losing face, and he kind of goes, but yeah, where's this information coming from? Which is actually a great question, and we should always, you know, strive to be objective, intellectually honest. Um, open to the idea that we may be wrong, uh, wanting to vet sources, etc. But I got the feeling that it was Joe actually not wanting to be wrong. That's why he was questioning the data. But it does seem to be the case when you look it up or research it online that myocarditis, including among young males, is more likely to develop as a symptom of COVID itself rather than as a vaccine side effect. And I will say, you know, in the spirit of fairness, even though I think Joe's guest was correct about, you know, the myocarditis and young males, etc., um, his guest wasn't a doctor or a scientist. And Joe called the guest out on something else, and I agreed with Joe. Uh, I'm no fan of Tim Pool, uh, but the guest referred to Tim Pool as being alt-right. And alt-right is more, you know, white nationalist, racist, that kind of thing. And Joe called him out and said, Tim Pool is an alt-right. And, and uh, I agreed with that. But back to this question of whether or not the vaccines are, are safe. I think, you know, as a layman, as far as I can tell, they're generally safe. Uh, and I think getting the vaccine is a lot better than getting COVID. And keeping it real, you know, one thing I've wondered about 
uh, and this isn't really based on anything, and this could be said for artificial sweeteners or food additives or a medication you take. I mean, could we find out 10 years down the road that there's these lingering or emerging complications from, you know, getting the, vac the vaccines or whatever? Who knows? You know, that's something like that is always a possibility. But in the here and now, you know, especially as someone with uh, asthma or whatever, I'll err on the side of getting vaccinated rather than take a, you know, rather than take a chance of getting COVID and ending up on a, a ventilator or whatever. But anyway, back to this phenomenon of Trump fans turning on him for his open advocacy of vaccination. You know, I found that to be an interesting area or example of cognitive dissonance for a while. Trump not only likes to promote the vaccines, but he also likes to brag by taking credit for their development. And yet, paradoxically, his rabidly loyal base or followers tend to be anti-vaccine or at least vaccine hesitant. And it was weird to almost find myself, you know, siding or agreeing with Trump uh, at a rally some months back, I think. Then at a recent event he did with Bill O'Reilly, Trump and O'Reilly matter-of-factly said they had both been vaccinated and had gotten their boosters, which elicited boos from the audience. And Trump, whenever he starts getting booed for promoting the vaccines, will walk it back a little and say, but you got to have your freedoms, no mandates, and then the audience will kind of start clapping again. Uh, so will Trump's own base turn on him? If so, what does that mean for the political landscape, the 2024 election? Uh, I don't know. Uh, but people tend to have short memories when it comes to politics. They could boo him one day for promoting vaccines and then feverishly embrace him again the next day if he throws them some red meat or tells them what they want to hear. But the whole vaccine debate is yet another thing that I'm starting to find, you know, really exhausting. So back to the review. So it gets to the point where the main characters, DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence and Rob Morgan's characters, just seem to kind of make their peace with the fact that the comet's coming and they try to make the most of the time they have left. And it's funny, Jennifer Lawrence's character pretty much gets reduced to working behind a cash register, I believe. And a group of these punk kids come in and they recognize her from TV, the girl who discovered the comet. And they seem, you know, kind of menacing. So I found myself almost worried for her character. Uh-oh, are they going to accost or assault her? What's going to happen? They invite her to hang out and she actually ends up going. So she's just hanging out with these punk kids behind a building or something, drinking, etc. And the lead punk, I guess you'd say, uh, is actually played by Timothy Chalamet, who plays Paul Atreides in the recent Dune film. In this film, he's got hair down past his shoulders, a leather jacket, so kind of like me back in the day. And uh, I think he's got a backwards baseball hat, too. Uh, so here's this weird contrast. You have a grad student famous for discovering a comet slumming around with a bunch Bunch of punk kids who like look like they're in their teens or early 20s and no offense to punk kids I was a punk kid back in the day and so Timothy Chalamet's character I believe his name is Yule which is pretty cool for us name uh, tries to kiss Lawrence's character and at first she's really startled and pulls back but then she quickly reconsiders and she's like why not the world's ending anyway you know let's make out and I like what they did with Chalamet's character. Instead of making him this one-dimensional character, you know, this punk kid with nothing under the surface, 
they give him a surprising amount of depth. He and Lawrence's characters are later lying on their backs, staring up at the stars or the comet, and their conversation takes a philosophical turn, and he starts, you know, telling her about how he was raised evangelical and rebelled against it, but eventually found his own way back to God, etc., and he plays kind of a key role in what I think is the last or one of the last scenes of the film. As I said, the characters start making their peace with the idea that the end is coming. DiCaprio's character kind of takes Jennifer Lawrence and Chalamet's characters on a road trip, and they stop to do some food shopping, and you're kind of like, what's going on here? Uh, they end up going to DiCaprio's character's home, and the food is for one last family dinner. Dr. Randall Mindy and his wife, the one I uncharitably described as frumpy earlier, embrace, and he tearfully apologizes for going astray, the affair and all that, and she seems to forgive him, and, you know, is just glad he's back. And so they, along with their two sons, Lawrence and Chalamet's characters, and Rob Morgan's character, the head of the Planetary Defense Coordination Office, <sighs> all sit down at the dinner table. And it's a very moving scene, and in a sense, it's literally a Last Supper. And speaking of religion, and even though I'm a non-believer, I didn't mind this part. I actually liked it for some reason. I thought there was something nice about it. DiCaprio's character and the others at the table aren't really religious. They're more scientifically minded people. Even though I should say, obviously, you can be a scientist and still be religious. The two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. And you, of course, have people like Francis Collins out there, who was the head of the Human Genome Project and was a personal friend of the late, great Christopher Hitchens. Actually, coincidentally, Francis Collins has been in the news again lately. It has to do with his connection to Anthony Fauci, but that's a whole nother can of worms. You can look it up yourself. I think The Hill did a couple of videos on it recently. But since the others at the table aren't really religious, Timothy Chalamet's character steps up and leads them in a prayer. And as I said, I liked it. It didn't seem like proselytizing or trying to obnoxiously shoehorn religion into the scene. It felt natural. It was like this small group of human beings trying to spend their last moment in a spirit of grace and love. Uh, it was touching. And then the comet finally hits, and they portray the impact in a very stylized and interesting way. Everything slows down, and the characters are still seated at the table, and you see the cracks slowly forming in the drywall, the glass in the windows slowly, you know, cracking and shattering, and then the comet just wipes everything out. So a very intense way to end. Heavy stuff, and it definitely stayed with me. There are a couple of mid- and post-credit scenes that add some post-film levity. I've spoiled the whole film, so why not spoil those little bonus scenes while I'm at it? And I forgot to mention that after the creepy tech guy's plan to fragment the comet fails, he and the president take off in his fancy spacecraft, uh, which is kind of timely too when you think about it. We've recently had Bezos and Musk and Branson dabbling in space exploration. Branson and Musk actually briefly going up into space. Uh, the president's son, once again portrayed by Jonah Hill, gets left behind. And there's a funny mid-credit scene where we see him emerge from the rubble and he's like, Mom! Mom. So, and then after the credits, and this was the most sci-fi thing about the film, 
the Peter Isherwell character, the tech billionaire, uh, the president and a handful of others land on some kind of habitable planet somewhere in space. I think maybe they were uh, supposed to be in suspended animation or something. So they all exit the craft naked and it's this beautiful unspoiled paradise. So there's definitely some Garden of Eden kind of symbolism or vibe. The president sees some brightly colored creature that looks kind of like some weird alien velociraptor or large bird or something. And she's like, oh, what a beautiful creature. Tries to approach it and the thing bites her face and starts eating her. So even the post-credit levity was kind of black or morbid. And that was a callback to something earlier in the film. Isherwell's tech is so invasive and so advanced that supposedly he or his company have an algorithm that can take all the data they have on you and use it to extrapolate how you're going to die or, you know, or predict. He tells the president that she's going to be eaten by something with some ridiculous sounding name. At the time, he doesn't even know what it means. But after she gets eaten, he's like, oh, I think that's called, uh, you know, insert whatever that crazy name was. And I read some articles online after watching this film that tried to reassure people that it's highly unlikely that we'll ever find ourselves in a scenario like what's depicted in the film, you know, where we're faced with the approach of a giant comet or planet killer asteroid. But I watched a video on YouTube where Brian Cox, the renowned British physicist and well-known science communicator, responds to the film. And granted, I haven't watched the whole thing yet, but he, he says early on, yeah, there's a low probability that we'll be faced with such a scenario, but low probability doesn't mean it's impossible. And low probability events still happen all the time. So there's something to think about when you're resting your head at night. Uh, but uh, I thought it was a great movie. And, uh, and I was, and as I was saying, it really stayed with me. And I think that's a sign of a good or at least impactful, no pun intended, film. Uh, you find yourself still thinking about it days or even weeks after initially viewing it. I was surprised by how mixed the reception was. I just checked. It currently has an audience score of 78%, which isn't too bad. But the tomato, and this is on Rotten Tomatoes, but the tomato meter score, which I think represents uh, the reviews of critics, right? is only 55%. But critics usually have their heads up their arses anyway, you know. I, I tend to give, uh, pardon my language, I tend to give more credence to what the audience or regular viewers think. I heard people saying early on, even before I got around to watching this film, that the poor reception among critics might in part be sour grapes over the negative way in which the film portrays the media. Is there some truth in that, you know, or is it conspiratorial? I don't know. All I know is that I liked it. And with that being said, I'm going to call this episode a wrap. As always, thanks for listening, everyone. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter, even though I'm not on there much. You can check out the YouTube channel. If you'd like to support the show monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash theweekendout and support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time.